I think that's about the best introduction you can get. He's a follower of Jesus. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. Thank you, John. And uh, thank you for coming back. You have no idea. I do not take it for granted. And one, I know the time will come sometime when I'll do a presentation like this and go away. Uh, thank you. And uh, come back and there's nobody here. <laughs> of course, I could have got the dates mixed up or something. But, uh, but, but I, I, I mean it seriously. Thank you for coming back. For the few of you who are here for the first time, um, the, the theme of this uh, event is uh, keys to thriving well in your life's calling. And <clears throat> I, I, I can't go over the whole introduction, but I, there are a few things I want to say. Um, and the reason I want to say them is because I've also had some very good discussions with uh, uh, various uh, of you. And it's been uh, very illuminating. And I, I sure have got you all thinking about that cortisol stuff, you know. And I got you wondering about what was that 10-year thing, what happened 10 years ago that was so crucial. But I'm, 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 I'm leaving that as a cliffhanger. I, 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 uh, <clears throat> so you have to come back tomorrow to hear about what happened 10 years ago that has so dramatically altered the course of... Uh, of events that has so dramatically increased the level of stress to such an extent that it is now the dominant issue in psycho in neuropsychology. It's the dominant issue, stress. And I, 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 I've been researching and writing about stress for 35, 36 years. Never got, no one paid too much attention in the early days. I wrote my book Adrenaline and Stress about 20 years ago. Uh, and it, it really foreshadowed the emphasis that was to come. But in my book, Adrenaline and Stress, I did not say much about this other hormone. For those of you who are new, I, I got into talking about the two major stress hormones, adrenaline, and the other one is cortisol. And in, um, at the time of writing my Adrenaline and, and Stress book, we didn't know much about cortisol. But now it's all about cortisol. And uh, the relevance of that will become more obvious tomorrow as, we, as I, I, I flesh out the, the, uh, the importance of cortisol and how it is devastating us uh, emotionally. I, I, I want to say also, um, uh, you know, I, I, I am missing my notes. I, I'm not that absent-minded, I know. I just bear with me one minute while I... Yes, got it. Ah, welcome. <clears throat> I, I, I do want to say a few things by, by uh, sort of kicking it off. I, that door through there that you go through to the toilets is going to give me nightmares tonight. I'm going to have excessive cortisol all night. It's not going to be good for me because it's a dual, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a male-female door. Have you noticed that? You go through a door. Well, it reminded me how some years ago my wife and I were going up to Portland, Oregon to speak at a conference, a pastor's conference, and uh, she often does go with me. She's a great presenter in her own right. And we flew up to Portland and got off the, 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 the airplane in Portland walked out into the reception area and saw these two guys standing there and uh, this was a Nazarene church conference and they looked just like Nazarene pastors. Now, don't ask me 
what is distinctive about Nazarene pastors, because I'm not going to tell you. But I saw them, I rang, oh, those, there they are, there, so, honey, come, that's, that's it. We walked out them, are you Dr. Hart? Yes, we're Dr. Hart. Well, we've got a three-hour drive, so up into the mountains. I suggest <clears throat> that you and your wife go to the restroom first before we leave. Our wives have gone. And I'm oh, a good idea, hold our bags, please, would you? And my wife and I, and I was in a little daze, and I walked behind my wife like that, you know, around people, and, and there was the toilet, and she walked in this door, and I walked in right behind her. <laughs> I was not paying attention. She vanished, and I'm standing there, looking around. I, I, there, there's this thing that we gentlemen use, you know, it's a vertical thing like this. I couldn't see it anywhere. I, I am absolutely confused, befuddled, and where is this thing? And, and I'm looking, and I turn around like this, and there are two ladies standing, holding their handbags, staring at me. <laughs> and the one turns to the other one and says, He's got to be our speaker. <laughs> well, what's the connection, you know? Oh, it was so embarrassing. I thought they were going to scream. I, I think it's illegal. I, I think you go to prison if you go into a lady's uh, 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 restroom. But I, I got out of there as quickly as I possibly could. And the next morning, we got up to this huge conference center. It was a big, big gathering. And the next morning, all around the campus of this conference center, someone had put up signs with an arrow. Dr. Hart this way to the gents. <laughs> uh, Rick, I think you're going to have to correct that door because I'm going to have nightmares about that, that, that thing. Yeah, so we, we, we're talking about um, uh, thriving. Finishing well. I, I made a connection between thriving and finishing well. You don't finish well if you don't thrive well. You don't get to the finish line and cross it having done a good job if you haven't run a good race. And I, I, I mentioned how the Apostle Paul in Acts says, oh, that I might finish this race. And then we turn over to first, second, uh, second Timothy and there he says, I have finished the race. What a wonderful achievement. And I talked about some of the, 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 the keys to to. to finishing well and said that this evening I wanted to talk about obstacles to thriving and you have the outline for session two. I don't need the PowerPoint for it so I would rather not fiddle on that. I do need it tomorrow for the depression presentation but uh, follow along in your outline. I will uh, try and keep to it fairly closely. Let's talk about obstacles. Finishing well I think is important for God. I mentioned this morning the opening words of Rick Warren's book, The uh, Purpose-Driven Life, and they, 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 these words say this, it's not about you. And then he goes on to explain, and I know exactly what he's trying to say, it's not about you. God's salvation is not about you. But that I suggested to you that there's another side to this coin, and the other side of the coin is it is all about you. The whole gospel's about you. Jesus died for you. And he wants you to live for him. Most of us know how to die for him. And we're dying all the time. We're accelerating our dying, and that's what stress is. It's accelerated dying. 
We can live for him. It's all about me. It's about me and God. Sure, what I do is important for his kingdom, and, and if you're a pastor, what you do in, in building, a, you know, building up the church is important for his kingdom. But you know, if first God looks at you and says, and as, as I quoted from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it's all about, we, we go to God and get the comfort first. And then we pass it on to others. You cannot bypass that formula. It's all about me. It's all about you. What about you and God? I, I quoted Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. And, uh, you know, he, he says so many wise things. And one of the things he emphasized, that we serve God best when we are in the best condition with him. We serve him best. And, and God doesn't look past you at, at those you lead, that Sunday school you teach, that congregation you preach to. Uh, God is not looking past you first. In my child, it's you and me. Come, come, let us get it right. And then we can do something for this world. And the problem with the evangelical church today, now I'm not a pastor, I've got, I've got no, I'm sorry, I'm not a pastor. I, I, I slip up every now and again. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor. I, I'm no, I have no reason to defend pastors. But the problem with today's ministry is that pastors think they can be pastors without paying attention to their person. And that doesn't work. Uh, <clears throat> a few things have come out uh, during the uh, many, many conversations I have had with some of you. Uh, just a few, a few of them I would like to, to emphasize, uh, say something about. Um, uh, uh, more more in, in, in ways of clarification, some of you asked questions that have really helped me sort of realize I didn't say it clear enough, but on the, on the matter of success, let me just rephrase what I was trying to say. God is not in the success business. He's in the refining business. And the pursuit of success is only valid it is if, if, it, if it is holistic. If I pursue success in building a church at the expense of my family and my marriage and my kids that success means nothing to the kingdom I'm sorry God looks past that and says my child what about that what about that what about that the pursuit of success is only valid if that pursuit embraces every aspect of your life your personal life your family life your children, your total health. So that's the first point I wanted to just underscore. Um, the second thing I, I, I wanted to say, I, I <coughs> introduced the, 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 the notion of living outside the box, and, and, and my assertion was that 
you cannot experience the peace of God or the joy of God if you live outside the box of his creation. In other words, in, in the, the, the limits with which God has created us, we have to learn to live within. And until fairly recently, we, we were able to, and this will come out clearer when I, I talk about stress, but what I want to say about this box, what I mean by the limits of the box? <clears throat> the limits of God's creation. He has, limited, he has designed, I, I believe, strongly in the doctrine of creation. And, 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 and that doctrine says clearly that God created us as clay pots, as earthenware vessels. Deliberately and intentionally. We have our limits. There's a limit to how long we can stay up without getting sleep. or go without sleep. There's a limit to how much adrenaline we can keep pumping every single day. Before it becomes, it turns against us. Or cortisol. Or anything else. The, 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 the box of limits of his creation are violated whenever going outside that box is destructive to the clay vessel, to the earthenware vessel. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit, folks. But we treat it like some disposable, you know, paper cup. And I, my wife often says, and I think she's right, uh, you know, that I have to stand before God one day and give an account of how I have treated my body. I believe that. He's entrusted to, to me. We do not have a mandate to abuse the body. No, no. No mandate for that. It's a clay pot, it's an earthenware vessel. And we have to live within its constraints. Its need for sleep, its need for rest, its need for recovery. And the primary reason for the excessive damaging stress that now is epidemic is not because stress, the intensity of stress or the severity of the stress is higher. The world is no more, is not crazier now than it has always been. I mean, just, just read the life of the Apostle Paul. Flogged, beaten, put in, imprisoned. I, I mean, the abuse he put up with would, would have killed most of us a long time ago. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with the intensity or the severity of the stress. It has to do with one thing only, and that is the diminished time for recovery that the body needs to deal with that stress. And what we have taken away is this recovery time. And we'll get into that a little bit more. The last thing I want, I, want, I want to say is that um, and, and, and take me seriously when I say this, that Satan's greatest weapon is ignorance. When I am ignorant about how God has created me, such that I then abuse this creation, I am playing right into Satan's hand. That's why I have given my life coming and talking to you and and, and, and wanting to stretch your understanding, I, I want to take the wonder, the awfulness of his creation. I want to paint it for you. I want to give you a picture of this beautiful thing that God has created. 
and then say, live within the box. And you will thrive. God will be glorified in the process. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, very quickly, let me, I'm going to go through 10 rules for being human. This is not in your outline, so you may need to note it, jot it down if you want to. But <clears throat> I just thought this might be an appropriate time for, given my assertion that you've got to live within that box, You've got to understand what your limits are. You have to have a clear sense of... You see, we, we differ. We have individual differences. The amount of energy that I can generate is nowhere near what my... Uh, uh, is far more than my wife can. The reason my wife isn't here, she would love to be here. I called her after our session, and she was about to go for her, the pastor's uh, support group, uh, wife's support group that she leads. And, um, and she said, oh, honey, I wish I was there. Please, please give them my love. And I said, I've already done that, honey, but yeah, I'll do it again. And I've just done it again, so I can say that. So I told them, I gave them your love. Pray, tell them I'm praying for them. And, and, but the reason she can't, she can't take the, the travel, you know, the jet lag. It's her, this, she's found her limits. And, and when, she, when she asserts herself to me and says, I'm sorry, honey, I know you want me to go with you, but I can't, okay? I say, hallelujah. You're living, you're living within the box. You know? That's the will of God. The will of God does not take us outside that box. Sorry. God would, would be violating his own creation. God doesn't do that. God never lies. Could be preaching about that, Rick, on Sunday. And, uh, and he never goes outside the box. He might overrule the box at times. That's a different matter. But he expects us to live with it. Now... I came across these ten rules for being human. I, I, want, I want to modify them. I'm going to say these are ten rules for living inside the box. Just quickly, you, you, if you've come across before, you might recognize. I want to modify it to fit the, my biblical perspective. Ten rules for living, okay? Within the box. One, you will receive a body. You may not like it. You may hate it. But it will be yours for the entire period. Do I get an amen? Come on. Amen. Uh, that was so half-hearted. You don't really mean that. So you might like it or hate it, but it's yours for the whole time, okay? Number two, you will learn lessons. Do you know that's what it's all about? Do you know that's all what the brain is about? The whole brain from beginning to end is all about making connections. It's all about, we make connections every day. It doesn't matter how old you are, you're making connections. That's what the brain's all about. You will, you will learn lessons. You are enrolled in a full-time informal school called life. Each day in this school you will have the opportunity to learn lessons. You may like the lessons, or you may think them irrelevant and stupid, but you have to learn them. Three. There are no mistakes, only lessons. A lesson will be presented to you in various forms. No, I'm sorry. There are no mistakes, only lessons. Growth is a process of trial and error. The failed experiments are as much a part of the process as the experiment that ultimately works. I made the statement this morning, in God's kingdom there is no such thing as failure. Only forced growth. Add now only forced learning. A lesson is repeated until it's learned. A lesson will be presented to you in various forms until you have learned it. When you have learned it, you can go on to the next lesson. Five. 
learning lessons does not end. There is no part of life that does not contain lessons. If you are alive, there are lessons to be learned. There, number six, there is no better here. No better here. H-E-R-E. When you are there, when your there has become a here, you will simply obtain another there that will again look better than the here. I love that. I, I think that's just priceless. Because there always looks better than here, you know. Number seven. Others are merely mirrors of you. You cannot love or hate something about another person unless it reflects something in you. That's a profound psychological statement, by the way. What we dislike in others is often what is not good in us. Eight. What you make of your life is up to you. God gives you all the tools and resources you need. What you do with them is up to you. The choice is yours. Nine. If the answers don't lie inside you, try the Bible. There are many lessons there that have already been learned by others that you can benefit from. So you don't have to learn them yourself. All you need, all you need to do is look to God, listen, and trust. Number ten. You will probably forget all of this by the time you have left the hall this morning. <laughs> so, you'll have to learn it all over again. <laughs> uh, it's just a little... Uh, yeah, thriving well is all about learning the right lessons. It's not having, you know, flower-strewn pathways all the way through. It's not having smoothly greased pathways or or a smooth ride. It's all about learning. Now I want to turn to the issue of uh, obstacles. What gets in the way? What are the things that are uppermost in my mind? And I realize that I, I know if you were to ask ten different people, you would get ten different sets of obstacles that prevent them from thriving. So I, I could merely be projecting on you what are my obstacles? So, I, but that's, that's the risk every speaker takes, actually. You, you, you talk about your own experience and you hope when you throw it out that it is relevant to others as well. But there are certain obstacles. Uh, I've listed um, <clears throat> four major ones there, and I, uh, I don't want to overdo this, but let, I'm, I'll do as many of them as I can and then make some general closing uh, comments. And these, these four are, 
are important to me. And I want to begin with one, and this is one that I have talked and preached about, and I think Rick will remember I even talked about it in his class with me, because it is the one, the most glaring one, that is ignored and overlooked and, and, uh, and, and is one of the major obstacles to thriving. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a modern form, a, a heresy, uh, which is a modern form of Gnosticism. Now, I, I know that you're not all trained in theology and may not all know what that word means. I'm going to flesh it out for you so you will know what I'm talking about. Gnosticism was a heresy that developed in the early church. John wrote his epistle, his first epistle, deliberately to attack and undo the influence of the Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism has many facets. But primarily what Gnosticism does is that it takes the human being and compartmentalizes it, splits it up into bits and pieces. It's also called dualism. For example, it takes the spiritual life and separates it out from the rest, the physical life. Gnostics believed that the spiritual life was not bound into the physical life. You follow? That it was somehow apart from. And as if the spiritual life had a life all of its own that didn't depend on the physical. It's very common today. This, this has been a, there's been a resurgence of this Gnostic way of thinking. Except though, in modern Gnosticism, we've taken it one step further. Not only have we separated out the spiritual from the physical, but we've separated the spiritual and the physical from the emotional. Now, that's bad enough. But now it's put into a hierarchical order. Top of the list, the spiritual. Then the physical. And the bottom, the emotional. If that gets there at all. There are many Christian groups that don't even recognize the emotional. And I've spent all my life trying to get that emotion in there somewhere. Now, the, 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 the fault of the Gnostics was this, that the spiritual was so important, they had separated it out so effectively, that what you did in the flesh, the physical realm, didn't matter. If you sinned in the flesh, in your, in physically, that was not a very big sin. But if you sinned in the spirit, that was serious. Now, this splitting, it's, 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 it's also called splitting into compartments and then treating them as if they are separate entities uh, means that we then compartmentalize our spirituality. All right? Now, I'm going to be talking about hidden addictions and sexuality tomorrow night. 
But let me illustrate for you how damaging this idea can be if you get entrenched in a spirituality that is apart from the rest of your being. See, what, what I'm suggesting, what I'm, trying, I'm getting and leading to is the, the Apostle John wrote his first epistle with the express purpose of trying to remove this compartmentalization. And I'll illustrate a little bit how this happens. But, but let's, let me just illustrate how this compartmentalizing of our spirituality can be damaging. I, I want to mention, I've got a very dear friend by the name of Gordon MacDonald. Some of you may know of his writings. He's a wonderful writer and has written wonderful books. Top Christian leader in the United States. But a few years ago, he succumbed to moral failure. He had an affair. He had sex with another woman. And was devastating to the Christian world. Devastating. Uh, more so even than the recent Ted Haggard situation in the United States, if, if you know about that. Prominent, prominent uh, leader, Pentecostal preacher, and he, he went with a homosexual. I mean, it wasn't even heterosexual. But anyway, Gordon was, a, was a, it was devastating to Gordon. And I uh, wrote a book many years ago uh, on the sexual man and have researched how sexual failures take place in ministry, in pastors. And I'm considered to be a, an expert in that field in the United States. So whenever there's a top Christian leader who's got in trouble, I'm the one they will call. And, and in Gordon's case, it, it, what was fascinating about it... Now, the point I want to make is this. This was an immoral act. But he is not an immoral person. Do you get the point? He is a, he's a very moral person. So, the, the, the mystery, the question is, how can someone so prestigious, so effective for God in so many ways, succumb to a debasing thing such as this. To be, you know, to have an affair of this nature. And so as I explored it with Gordon, it came down very clearly to this issue. He said to me, Arch, I fell into the trap of compartmentalizing my spirituality. And I'd step up into the pulpit and I, and I had my spiritual bubble around me. And I, I didn't feel any guilt. I, it is so compartmentalized, so split off. Psychologists call it splitting. So split off, so effectively, that I was, I could preach and I could be passionate, plead for God, step out of the pulpit and out of my bubble and then go and have an affair. Another very prominent Christian leader in the United States carried on an affair for a whole year. He would preach to 15,000, 16,000, get out of the pulpit, get in his limo, go to a penthouse nearby where his lover from the choir was waiting. He is a godly man. If you knew the name, you would be horrified. But how, why? Why? What, what, what happened here? Well, you know, there's a strange thing happened, but somehow my spiritual life got split off from the rest of my life. 
And I, I never felt that it was incongruous in any way. This splitting is very serious and it's very common. And hardly a week goes by that I don't hear of or have, uh, ask, have, uh, get an email or request from someone if, they, if I can come and uh, can see them. So my point is, you see, that, that splitting off our spirituality and then giving it priority over everything else. Not any biblical bad theology. It's heresy and it is no way you're going to thrive if that's what you're doing with your spirituality. Let me illustrate it another way. I, I, I shared this afternoon that my wife is the, was, she's now retired from it, but was the chaplain to student wives at Fuller Seminary. Every Wednesday morning, the wives of seminary students gather, not the whole, all of them, but those who want to, a big group, 40, 50 of them, 60 of them, and they have a support group. They pray, my wife leads a Bible study, uh, she's a very wise person. She's never been trained in counseling, but I tell you, she'll out-counsel any one of you here this evening. She just has that sort of wisdom. When, when someone like Jim Dobson is in trouble, you know who he will, he will call for counsel? My wife. He's the world expert in how to raise kids, you know. And uh, she is just quite phenomenal. But at any rate, she, she leads this group. And we have rules about this. She shares nothing about what goes on in that group with me. I was the dean. If I heard things about certain, from wives what certain students were doing, I would have to take action. And oh boy, you know, it could be, all hell could break loose. So, pact is, she, she shares nothing with me. Total confidentiality. Student wives know that. They can share with her. and will never go anything any further. Well, so I have a rule that uh, she models for them. You, do not, you can call any time between 8 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock at night. I will be ready for you. I'm available to you. I will counsel with you. I'll help you. I'll pray with you. But after 5 o'clock, my husband comes home. And we have our time together. One day you'll be in ministry and you will appreciate why I am saying that to you. Anyway, one night, it was a Thursday, I'll never forget it, 11 o'clock at night, the telephone rings. Now, I happen to believe that the telephone is demon-possessed. <laughs> I hate the telephone. I detest it. I do not touch it. I have a mobile phone. Some of you may have... No, this is not it. I... But there's only one number on it that I can call. It, it, it's sole purpose for communicating with my wife. It's its only purpose. I do not receive calls. I have a secretary. When I was dean, I had three secretaries who received calls. I never answered the phone. And in our home, I don't answer the phone. The phone is next to my wife's side of the bed. So, 11 o'clock at night... The phone rings. Now my wife picks it up. She knows I'm trying to sleep past my bedtime. And she's trying to talk softly. So she, I, she pulls all the blankets over her and makes a little tent, you know, so it would be silent. And she's whispering like that. But it's a still, still night. It's dead still. You can hear a flea flap. Do fleas flap their wings? I, I don't know. Fleas jump, I think. 
Well, you can, you can hear them jumping. I mean, blop, 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 blop. I can hear everything. I can hear the conversation from the other side. So I've got the total conversation, right? And I'm too tired to say to her, honey, we're violating the confidential rule because I can hear everything. So she just, <laughs> well, I'm lying there and now I listen to the story that emerges. And I can piece the whole thing together, you know. I can piece it all together. And this, this is what it boils down to. This student wife is calling. Because that day, she and her husband had a big tiff. What happened was that he is taking a course in the seminary on prayer. But the professor wanted them not just to learn about prayer, but wanted them to experience it. So they had agreed to come together 5 o'clock every morning. It was a, an intensive course over two weeks. So they would get together 5 o'clock in the morning and pray until 8 o'clock, singly, pairs, little, small groups. Then 8 o'clock class would start and class would go to midday, break for lunch, and then continue in the afternoon. So that day, midday, Hubby comes home to his apartment, his flat on campus. He opens the front door, and sitting opposite the front door is his three-year-old little boy, arms folded, waiting for Daddy to come home. Been waiting there since 8 o'clock in the morning when he got up. And as Daddy comes through the door, he jumps up and he runs forward, and he grabs Daddy around the legs. Oh, Daddy, 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 oh, Daddy, you know. And <clears throat> now I, I'm, I, I'm embellishing this a little bit because my imagination is quite vivid. But I can imagine that he's a tall guy. You follow? And, and I can see him struggle to get in the house with that little kid clinging to his legs, both arms around it. So eventually he shakes his leg like this as you would a dog that was sort of nipping at your heels. And this little guy falls backwards, knocks his head, and starts screaming his head off. Wife now is concerned. She's in the kitchen, and I can imagine that she looks back like this, looks down the corridor, sees him, the little boy, sizes up the situation and says to him, Oh, honey, you know, you've been going every morning so early. He's been sitting there since 8 o'clock waiting for you to come home. Won't you just pick him up, give him a kiss, tell him you love him, and he'll be okay. Hubby is offended, takes it as a rebuke, walks up to his wife, and I'm imagining that he's this tall guy, puts his hands on his hips and leans down over into her face. And he says these words. That's your problem, woman. You don't understand the things of God. Meaning, I've been in a spirit of prayer since five o'clock this morning. I've been in communion with God. I've been on the mountain with him. I've come down from the mountain. Can't you see the Shekinah glory? <coughs> I, I, I don't have a veil, but you know, you, surely it's still there. Can't, can't, you see, woman, you don't understand this. I've been with God. I've been communing with God. I come in through the front door. I'm not ready to engage, you know, little kids who, you know, who are in the way. You don't understand the things of God. He turns around and he walks out the front door. It's now 11 o'clock at night. She has no idea where he is. And then, this little voice 
coming out of the, the, the earphone of the, the... I'd never forget it. This plaintive little voice. She says, oh, oh, Kathleen, Kathleen, is it true? Is it true that I don't understand the things of God? At that point, I am sitting bolt upright in bed. <laughs> and I want to shout out, man. No, it's not true. You do understand the things of God. He is the one who doesn't understand the things of God. If you think, if you think that God is more interested in you keeping your Shekinah glory, while a little three-year-old boy is starved for his father's affection, you don't know God. You don't know him. I was so angry. We've continued, my wife has continued to stay in touch with this lady. She, they, he graduated and he left. Went to a church. Two years later, he was an associate pastor at this one church. Two years later, discovered that he was having an affair with one of her best friends. And you know who he blamed for it? He blamed his wife. This was his reasoning. If you hadn't have made friends with this person, she wouldn't have come into our life and I wouldn't have had the affair with her. Is that crazy or what? He has since been fired and he had divorced his wife. And then just a few months ago, because my wife stays in close touch with this lady, he called her, his wife, this guy called his wife a few months ago and wanted to know whether they could reconcile, you know. You've got to be crazy, man. You've got to be crazy. You see, that's Gnosticism. You compartmentalize your, your spirituality to such an extent that nothing else matters, nothing else is important. It's, it's not biblical, it's heresy. It, it is strongly influenced by the Greek in our New Testament, unfortunately. The Greeks loved creating separate dualisms, compartments for things. And they take love and they break it down into little pieces. And you get a lot of that in, 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 in the Greek influence. But our heritage is, is, is the Old Covenant. And you get a, a more accurate perception of what God is about, if you pay attention a bit to your, old, to your Old Testament. You see, for Jews, there is no such split. They do not split. It is an integrated whole, and that's what we are lacking. That is an obstacle to thriving, because what we are failing to do is to put our spirituality back in our being, in, at the core of our being, an integral part of our being. For the Jew, the, the good day, the mitzvah, is as important as their prayer. The, there's no separation. And for us, listen, let me summarize this. You cannot be spiritual without regard to who you are as a person. 
You cannot split your spirituality off and then say, I can ignore my body, do what I like with it, and I can ignore my emotions, do what I like with it. I can pump as much cortisol as I like, and if you don't like it, then tough, you know, you know what. Go and do that. We lack this integration in our evangelical uh, ethos. One more illustration that comes very close to home. My dear wife, um, she's a very wise, spiritual person. Just intuitively wise, spiritually. <clears throat> but she has naturally just, you know, what, what you see is what you get. You do not have the splitting on inside my, in my wife, not at all. But a little while ago, she was on the phone talking to a pastor's wife. She calls them her beloved. The, 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 the wives that follow were her little sheep. <laughs> her lambs, she called them, her lambs. These are her beloved. <clears throat> and she was talking on the phone, and I happened to be sitting close by, and I overheard her side of the conversation. And it went something like this. She was... <clears throat> trying to counsel this, this pastor's wife and she, she was saying let me, let me give you an illustration she said I don't, I don't know the context altogether but this is the illustration my wife was giving she said well you see how I do it is this I, first of all I love God then I love my husband then I love my children and my grandchildren you know then I love you my beloved and she finished the conversation. I was sitting there. I said, should I say something? Shouldn't I? You know, this is a typical, don't you have this debate with yourself in marriage? Do I say something? Don't I say something? If I say it to me, I might offend. If I don't say anything, you know, it might be, you know. I was battling, and, uh, you know, but I can be honest with my wife. So when she'd hung up, I said, hey, you know, can I share something with you? Sure, honey. I have heard you talking with your friend, and you said how you love God first, and then you love your husband and then you'll have your children, and so on down. I know exactly what you mean by that. So don't, you know, don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. But, but I'd, I'd like you to think about Gnosticism. And let me rephrase it, and, it, and you'll, you'll get what I'm getting. And I said, honey, it's because I love God so much that I can love you as much as I do. Do you get the difference? And then, honey, it's because I love you so much that I can love God as much as I do. God isn't in competition for our love. God is love. That's John's message. God is love. Wherever we manifest love, we manifest the God we love. I cannot love my wife too much. Just as I cannot love God too much. But there's no way I could say I love my wife more than God or God more than my wife. It, it doesn't work that way. And that's Gnosticism. And, and, and John wrote his wonderful epistle uh, just emphasizing the fact that 
that we have to love one another. You don't have to... Any idea how, what a revolution this could make in your marriage? I, I get pastors come and they sit down, you know, I, I don't think I love my wife anymore, and I want to say to them, and I often do, then you don't love God either. You don't love God either. It could revolutionize our marriages, man. Our, our marriages could finish well. And, and they're in serious trouble in many instances. Now you can't separate the spiritual. It's, it, it, it's, it's part of your being. And the, the message then is that, that as I shape my care of my body, as I deal with my emotions, these are spiritual disciplines. I totally reject the idea that there's a group of spiritual disciplines here and they have no bearing on this other stuff over here. I'm sorry. That's dualistic. That's Gnosticism. And then you see my character begins to take on the godliness. While I leave my spirituality out of my character, my character doesn't become godly. We've got to put it all together. We've got to preach it. We've got to teach it. So, that's obstacle number one. Um, I'm going to go another 15 minutes or so, if you could just bear with me, and then we'll take a short break again, as we did this afternoon, before we go into our our second session. The, the, the second obstacle that I, I wanted to raise, and then again, I, you know, I, I, must, I own up to the fact this may be my issue only, or, but I, I've used it in my seminars with clergy, and so often do I get a response uh, which says, oh, that was so important for me that uh, you know, I, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm going to include it in the obstacles that I'm talking to you about this evening. I call it the grandstand effect. Now, it's going to be a lot easier talking to a bunch of Brits about grandstand effect who know what rugby is than talking to a bunch of Americans. I, I, I have great difficulty explaining this because they, don't, they think that football is the game of heaven when I, I think it's rugby myself. <laughs> but <clears throat> when I was uh, in my final year of high school, I played rugby. I was eighth man. I was the short guy, so I'm... You're at the back there in all those butts, you know, <laughs> trying to give support to the rest. But um, in, our, in the final year of our high school, the All Blacks team from New Zealand came to South Africa, touring the country, and they were in the Eastern Transvaal area, and we're going to play a test match in, in the, the stadium in Johannesburg. <clears throat> and as happens typically in um, test ma- rugby test matches, is that for curtain raiser, do they use that expression here? Curtain raiser is a sort of uh, the, the, the game before the big game. They would invite two high school teams to play. And that's just to fill the, the, the ground while people are coming in, basically. And so what ha- so happens that our team from my high school uh, was the one team chosen, and then there was another team, and I can't even remember who the other team was, but we played curtain raiser. And this is the very first time 
in my life, and I've never done it since, that I've had to sort of perform like that in front of a large crowd of people. <clears throat> and I, I learned a, a very powerful lesson that day. I only uh, benefited from that lesson later in my life, but I learned the lesson then. And the lesson was that it, uh, how powerful a grandstand affects how you play. If you do something and the grandstand boos, you don't do it again. Not unless you're stupid. If you do something and they applaud, you do it again. And get a little old hat if you do it too much. But I, I, I felt the power of the grandstand that day. Felt it very, very strongly. That All Blacks team was, was brilliant. In fact, I still remember who the full back, full back was for that All Blacks team. It's a guy by the name of Jeff Allen. Um, very famous All Blacks, full back. Yeah, and, and so the, 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 the grandstand very much shaped that game and how we did and how we performed. Years later, I was reflecting on my life. I was in my mid-40s. Uh, sort of trying to evaluate things and where am I going, what am I doing and so on and I suddenly sat up with that ah experience ah. I, I realized how much in my life just as in the game the grandstand controls how you play the game in life a grandstand controls how I live my life And, and I, as I sat back again to reflect, talk to a few other people, soon discovered, you know, almost every one of us could sit back and identify a grandstand locked away in our mind there somewhere that has a strong influence over what we do. As if we live our life playing to the grandstand. Do you get the idea? I mean, I hope it's, it's clear that the, the, the concept. And I, be, I began to think about this, began to think about who was in my grandstand and what effect they were having. And the first person who came into my mind was my father. In my grandstand. Here I am, 45 years of age, pretty much my own person, but I'm still playing the grandstand in a way to please my father. Now, my father was not a very good father, I'm sorry to say. I, my, 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 my family was very, very dysfunctional. <clears throat> my parents divorced when I was 12. I wrote a book. I think I have brought a copy um, about that, dealing with uh, children and divorce. It was called originally, now, now it's called Helping Children Survive Divorce. I do, my parents divorced when I was 12. It, 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 it left its mark. It always does when it's at that age. And, and I, I, uh, you know, I wrote the book subsequently, but, but my father was not a very good father. He, he had a sort of British way about him, if I don't mind me saying this, in, that, in, in this respect. And that is that his idea of motivating me was to put me down. Um... So he would challenge me. You know, you're never ever going to amount to anything, don't you? He would say to me. I'm like, 
11, 12 years of age. It was designed to, for, to, for me to rise up and prove him wrong. I mean, that's, it, it's a sort of a negative reinforcement, is what he was doing. And, I, and really, I never could please him, because he always, you know... I, <clears throat> I used to get top marks in my school growing up, in primary school, before I was 12. Top marks, top of the class. And I'd come home, <clears throat> and he'd look at my, my report card, and he'd say to me... Hmm, what are you, who are you trying to impress here? Do you think your friends are going to like this? You know, in other words, if you, if you do too well, they'll think you're just showing off or something. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? So I learned very quickly to deliberately, intentionally make mistakes on exams. And, and I got quite good at doing it, so I came in the middle somewhere so no one could pay any attention. You're never going to amount to something. You know that, don't you? Then, and so I found that lots of things I was doing was unconsciously, I didn't realize I was doing it, was really trying to appease that voice in my head. In my, it was in my grandstand. Next person over was my grandfather. I bear his name. Do you think I'd like Archibald? <laughs> I hated it when I was growing up. The Archie comics used to go out of then. And I know that most of you are not old enough to remember the Archie comics. He was this idiot guy, you know, and I sort of felt like my name stamped me as an... That's why I changed it to Arch, Rick. I don't, you know, I'm known mainly, mainly as Arch. But, but my grandfather, Archibald D. Hart, I, I bear his full name. He was a wonderful man. Oh, I loved him so dearly. And my father was saying to me, you're never going to amount to anything, don't you? And my grandfather was saying to me, you can do anything you set your mind to do. And I remember that day when I was barely, my, about the time of my parents' divorce. My grandparents lived in a, a, a country, the country area. There was a nice a stream that flowed through down the bottom of their garden. They had a large property. And I'd wanted a sailboat to sail on that. This was Second World War. There were no toys. The war effort had everything. And my grandfather said to me, do you want to build a boat? Oh, granddad, yes. Well, come into the workshop. See, my father wouldn't let me use his tools. He was a carpenter. But he wouldn't let me use his tools. You might break them. Twelve-year-old kid. My grandfather would say to me, do you want a boat? Come into the garage. Come on. He has a spokeshave. And some of you don't even remember, know what that tool is. An old-fashioned thing for shaping things. And he has a block of wood. Let's make a hole out of that. And we shape this and we put a keel on it. And then we put a mast. Now he said, let's go and ask Granny for an old pillow slip and we'll make a sail. And one day that glorious boat, I remember walking down to the bottom of the garden and putting it in the stream at the top and chasing it as it floated down the most glorious boat that has ever been built. <laughs> Picking it up and back again. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I believed him. I didn't believe my father. But he's in my grandstand. And then my first boss, when I became an engineer, I, 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 the book, I wrote a book on the workplace, Crazy Making Workplace. The publisher asked me once to write about we spend a lot of time in the workplace and we hardly ever think about what goes on there. 
And there's a chapter in that book called The Boss from Hell. It's all about my first boss. Oh, he was a tyrant. His name was Doug. He'd been a pilot in the Second World War. I think he must have had some emotional impact of that. I'd finish my design, I'd get my plans ready under my arm and I'd go in because I had to get approval from the boss before we go and build that bridge or whatever. And I spread out the plans for him and he would look at over. Uh, hmm, yeah, okay. No, not good enough. And he'd take the one end of the plans and just shove them off like that. Go do it again. No feedback, no idea what's wrong. Now I pick up the plans and I roll them under my arm and I go back. What, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I completed my, it was during my engineering training, I completed my engineering, got a job down in Peter Marisburg, married, married my wonderful wife, and we moved down there, and I thought, oh, free at last, free at last. I felt just like you know, king, free at last, free at last. And then the boss of the engineering company, I was now working with three tires, and they advertised his job. Guess who gets the job? <laughs> the boss from hell. I worked for him for some years after that until I switched to psychology. And he was in my grandstand. Now, this is what I'm saying. These were pure people in my grandstand affecting my decision. I do something. I mean, I wrote my first book. You know, the first thing I wanted to do was take a copy of the book and send it to Doug. Sent one to my father. Why? You know, what, what am I trying to prove? All right. The point I'm making is this. You will, cannot thrive if you live your life to a grandstand. You've got to identify who is in that grandstand. Who is it you're trying to impress? Who are you trying to please? Whose opinion is driving you to make the decisions you are making? Because you know what? There should be only one person in your grandstand. Clear it out. Find out who it is. And consciously and deliberately clear it out. There's only one person must be in that grandstand. And if you want to thrive in your calling, it's only God must be in that grandstand. And then someone will often say to me, but, but what about your grandfather? Wasn't he good in your grandstand? Yes, but not in my grandstand. The difference between having a coach or a mentor. So, granddad, would you mind coming down to the playing field, stand on the side there, give me some advice, coach me? But, but the grandstand is the approval thing. It, it's, it's the judgment thing. It condemns you when you're not doing the right thing. And only God. And, and, and pastors... Pastors in particular need to watch this thing carefully because it's so easy, so easily get caught up in trying to please boards and deacons and, 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 and hierarchy and, and so on. And, and of course we must be a team player. I'm a team player. I want to be a team player. But it, it come, I draw a line. I, I'll play on your team but get out of the grandstand. Only God. It's an audience of one. Someone wrote a song called from Heibel's Church wrote a song, I want to please an audience of one. If you can get that right, you'll thrive. Can't help it. Well, I think we, we need to take a break. Um, 
Is that okay? Just a five-minute break, no longer than that, and uh, then I want to move towards wrapping it up. Thank you. <laughs>